Hi, this is Annika. Welcome to the podcast Gender and Climate. In this podcast, we talk about how climate change affects people around the world with focus on gender differences. In other words, how gender and climate affect and relate to each other. We always pick one specific topic to cover the subject from different angles. So, let's get started. Hi and welcome everyone back to a new episode of the podcast Gender and Climate. This is Annika. So, you all know that I love recommendations. Um, when anyone tells me, hey Annika, you need to go to this theater, you need to try this food or you need to read this book, I'm the one following this recommendation and suggestion because I just think when friends or family or whoever suggests me something they like, so I think they already evaluated it, so I'm always very grateful for that. That's why we want to give you today a recommendation and talk about a very nice book that I think it's worth reading and we have the honor today to speak or I have the honor today you have the honor to listen to uh, to the author of a very nice book so please welcome my guest today on the blue sofa Dr. Anne Karp. Anne is professor of life writing and culture at the London Metropolitan University, a writer, sociologist and experienced public speaker. She has published five books, one of which she has won awards with and deals with the very topic of this podcast. So today we want to dive very much into that book carrying the title How Women Can Save the Planet. Hi, Anne. I'm so happy to have you here today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. As I said, it's an honor to have you here on the kind of like blue sofa. <laughs> um, and I, I am so much curious what you're going to talk about and what you're going to share with us today. Um, but before we dive into your, into your book and then the very insights that you're going to share, I would like to give the listeners a short introduction of who you are. So may I ask you to please introduce yourself briefly answering the question, where are you right now and where did you actually grow up? Mm. Um, I am sitting in my study in North London at the moment. Um, and I grew up in North London, so I've probably only moved a few miles. <laughs> since I was born, but I've moved in other respects internally. Um, yeah, I grew up in London. Um, my parents uh, were not British, though. They were Polish-Jewish Holocaust survivors. Um, my mother was a survivor of um, Kwaszów, the camp that was in Schindler's List, and Auschwitz, Birkenau, um, and a third camp um, in the Auschwitz chain, Lichterwerden from which she was liberated by the Russians in 1940, May 1945. And my father um, was, spent the war in Russian labor camps. And they met after the war and um, married very quickly. And my father came to the UK um, as an economic advisor to the Polish treasury. And then he was recalled to Poland, but everyone had died, all the family during the war. 
and uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. So they applied for asylum in the UK and got it. And I grew up here. Oh, that's a that's a very very intense family background, I would say. So you must have yes, had a very 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 tough childhood. Ooh, mm. Oh, oh, mm. and thanks th thanks for sharing mm. that. Um, yeah, so um, let's. I would say let's dive right directly into into our topic today because um, I think I would have thousands of questions concerning your family background and history, but I think we don't have the time for that. Um, yeah. And I'm actually I'm actually sad about it, but I think we could we could have this conversation maybe some other day. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, talking about of course we're talking today about about your book how women can save the planet um and you published that very book in 2021 uh mm. so in this podcast we talk exclusively about the nexus of gender and climate and and that's mm. why our listeners know how much especially women from the global south are being affected and suffering from climate change and climatic changes um, women who, yeah, actually are the ones uh, having done the least to cause the catastrophe that we're talking about. Um, I would be interested in 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 the backgrounds of the book. Actually, what made you write this book? What is the story behind it? Now that's a good question, and in fact, it does link back to my last answer about my family background because I think for a very long time. I was very resistant to thinking about the climate crisis. I mean, partly for the same reasons that most of us or many of us do, that it seems too vast and too terrible a subject to think about. Um, and we feel pretty helpless in the face of it. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, you know about Extinction Rebellion. I always mm -hmm. joke that, you know, I grew up with so many stories about extinction and the threat of extinction to my family. As, as Polish Jews, that I kind of rebelled against that and really, or very belatedly rebelled against it. That, that's a whole other story. So I really, that was another reason for not wanting to think about this larger possible extinction. But then my younger daughter, who's very socially engaged, became very, very preoccupied with the subject. And I found myself in a very unusual um, position, Annika, because um, I know I usually describe myself as a, um, a short term pessimist and a long term optimist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I am quite um, a pessimist, na a, a natural pessimist. Uh, my husband jokes when we go and watch Arsenal, which is the football team we follow, mm -hmm. that he doesn't even <laughs> want me on the bench next to me because I'm always predicting we're going to lose. Um, so. But I found myself in this unusual situation with my daughter Lola, where she was so pessimistic and, and saying we're all doomed, and I was being optimistic. Mm -hmm. So I felt that maybe I should look into it more. And then a publisher wanted me, was interested in me writing a book about women and cities. And everything I read and everything I thought about kept coming back to the climate crisis. And I really thought everything is telling me, you know, the universe is telling me this is what I have to write about. I just mm -hmm. felt such a strong feeling 
that, I mean, particularly when I started to look into it, because I saw that there was this enormous amount of um, evidence and research that had built up over almost 20 years, but that it hadn't crossed over into the public domain. So that if you actually started to, as I did when I started to write the book, tell people what you were writing about, mm -hmm. they would sort of cut you off and say, oh, we haven't got time for that sort of mm -hmm. factionalism at the moment. You know, this is when we all have to pull together and we're all in it together. And this is what I call the climate we, you know, this idea that effaces all the differences and says and 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 ignores the fact that we are not all equally responsible for what's happened and we are not all going to be affected equally. It's a kind of very comfortable illusion, um, reassurance that um, conceals all the differences of social class, of gender, of ethnicity, of hemisphere, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. ability and disability, all those intersectional differences. And it's very reassuring to think, oh, well, we're all in it together. Whereas patently we're not, because those of us who are in the global north and in wealthy countries and are middle class um, are obviously in a much better situation. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, um, so I just felt um, compelled really to, to, to address this subject head on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it has, it, it's, it's made me, it's made my short-term pessimism worse and my long-term optimism better because I feel that human beings surely must pull ourselves back from the brink of this catastrophe that is staring us in the face. At least I hope so. Mm -hmm. I hope we'll pull back from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you, Loda, actually, for <laughs> for <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for making you basically write that book. Um, yeah, crazy, and it's uh, yeah, yeah, love it. Um, so so Anne, um, in the book you talk a lot about, of course, obviously the nexus of gender and climate. Um, my listeners uh, mostly know about it, but maybe there is a person joining this podcast for the first time now, and this, that's maybe the first episode that, uh, who this person is listening. So if anyone maybe wants to learn about the connection of gender and climate, if you would describe this connection to a person who has never heard about it, um, mm. how, would, how would you actually describe this nexus to someone who's just getting started to learn about the, the interconnection? Right. right. Well, first of all, I would stress, and I want to stress, that we're talking about gender and not sex or biology or chromosomes here. Mm -hmm. So gender is social roles, conventions, expectations, the way we are raised, um, and those... Um, roles that um, we are expected to um, to fulfill in in various different societies so it doesn't mean we're saying you know women good men bad or any you know simplified slogans like that mm -hmm. on the contrary there are men who have been um, very uh, engaged with the issues of the climate crisis 
and who themselves tread lightly upon the earth. I live with one of them. My husband is one of them. <laughs> um, and there are women who do the opposite. And indeed, yeah. some of, of, of the fact that women have, I mean, we know that women have contributed less to the causes of, um, of global heating. But that isn't, again, necessarily because we're, you know, we've got um, a virtuous gene or anything, or we're intrinsically carers of the planet, both of which I reject. We haven't actually had the opportunity to um, pollute as much because we know that women, for example, own and drive fewer cars than men. Um, this is largely because women around the world don't earn as much as men. Um, women eat less meat than men. Um, all the main fossil fuel companies and the financial institutions that back them are run by men. Now, somebody asked me at one event I did, they put up their hand and said, do you think if all those men heading fossil fuel companies were replaced by women, things would be better? And I went, no, it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference because simple representation is not the answer. You know, we're talking about the burning of fossil fuels and simply changing, you know, that kind of what I call Sheryl Sandberg lean in feminism that just tries to open up the same opportunities in, in capitalist societies for women as men have had is of no interest to me and, it, and won't do anything. We're talking about making absolutely fundamental changes. So the argument is, first of all, that women have done less to cause um, global heating. And that is, in particular, women in the global south, uh, poor women of colour, who've done the least. And they are in the front line. They are being affected more than anyone else in all kinds of ways. First of all, we know that in um, climate-induced extreme weather events like droughts and, and floods, more women, far more women than men die. Why? Again, not biology, but to do with social roles. Um, women in a lot of cultures are not encouraged to learn how to swim or climb trees. And anyway, their clothing would impede them from doing that. Women mostly have responsibility for looking after children, old people, and um, the kitchen and cooking. So it's hard for them just to run away in the face of a climate catastrophe because they will want to take and look after children, old people, and, and for example, cooking pots, absolutely vital. So all those um, aspects, are, you know, I give lots of examples in my book. Another example of, of what's been called climate violence, so that when um, disaster, climate-induced disasters strike, for example, bushfires in Australia or floods in New Zealand, men who have grown up with a traditional view of masculinity, and I should stress that's not the only kind of masculinity, there are various different masculinities, but a traditional view of masculinity is that the man should protect the home and the family. And there's a lot of evidence now that when men are unable to do that, because nobody can in the face of, uh, you know, a rampaging bushfire, the frustration they feel and disappointment gets turned outwards and often turned into violence towards those closest to them, who are women. 
So, you know, and then there's other examples of, you know, when people have to migrate. And of course, climate induced migration is the big thing that's coming. Um, and that's already started in big ways. Um, uh, you know, families end up, um, households end up in, in emergency shelters where women are much more um, exposed to sexual violence and abuse. So in all these different ways, women are affected in the same ways of men on the one hand, but also in additional distinctive ways. And then the third element of this rather terrible picture, that there is good news to come, I promise you. <laughs> um, but the third aspect of it is that you would think that, well, surely women are involved in climate negotiations. I mean, we see, we saw in all those youth protests on the streets, and people have done some research, that um, the majority of those young climate protesters are women. We know from very, we have very robust evidence that shows that when women have a higher political status in a country and are more involved in government, that climate negotiations are more likely to be stronger and are more likely to be adopted. So that would make you think, surely, logically, that, oh, yes, there are a lot of women involved in climate negotiations. And even though the Paris Agreement was driven by female negotiators, uh, primarily Christina Figueres, um, the reality is, if you look at the figures for all those UN committees that are negotiating on climate, and there are dozens of them, my goodness, it's committee heavy, um, women at the very best occupy a, a, a number, a third of the members, and in most of them, a fifth. And in fact, those figures have got worse over the last few years, over the successive COP conferences, and not better. So then you see, overall, you've got this picture, women least responsible for causing the climate crisis, women most affected by the climate crisis, particularly women of colour, poor women of colour in the global south, women least represented in all the top table negotiations. And this is just crazy. This is crazy. This should make us all very, very angry because, you know, is it surprising that um, progress has been so slow when the people most affected are least in evidence and are not leading the negotiations and the change? And this is what has to change. Well said, this is what has to change, yeah. So, and for the book itself, you, you did quite a lot of research and you talked to several climate and or gender equality, respectively, feminist activists. Um, so, may you share one or two stories, maybe, or, or examples um, that really stood out to you and uh, which you will always remember Yeah, may you, may you share some stories describing how intense the gender climate nexus really is and how much people are impacted by it? Uh, sure. I mean, I so what I tried to do in the book was, first of all, just assemble all the research, that really powerful research that I could find, 
and put it together in a very accessible way for people who might not know anything about the subject so that it was, you know, very um, cast iron, the evidence, mm -hmm. but also you didn't need to know anything to read the book. But what I also, I started interviewing climate activists and almost immediately I realised that these stories were so powerful that actually I didn't want to just cut snippets of them, that I, that I decided to use them in between each chapter, like a sort of filling in a sandwich. You know? So I chose eight of the most powerful interviews and I worked with the interviewees to edit them for clarity and for length. So that, you know, they were, the interviews were an hour, an hour and a half, you know, it was about 12, 13,000 words. And I cut them down to 1,000 words with their agreement and with their help. And this is what made me excited and optimistic because these eight, and honestly, I interviewed, you know, a dozen more. And obviously I could have, I could have spent years just interviewing activists. But these interviews really gave me hope. And I tell you, the mm. first person I interviewed, and in fact, she is the first interview at the beginning of the book because she sets it out so brilliantly. And that is Anissa Khan, who, when I interviewed her, was 25. She comes from Chennai, which used to be called Madras in India. Um, but she got a scholarship to study in the US. And she was so clear about how her activism emerged out of her experiences as a young woman of colour from the global south because um, she talked about the fact that in 2019 there was such a severe drought in India that in Chennai that um, the only way you could get water was to collect it in a bucket and people started to fight over it and she said just think about it, she said to me, an entire city of a million people, um, you know, there was no water for a few days. And apparently by 2030, 40% of Indians won't have access to water. Um, and just the, the thought of that mm -hmm. is so staggering, yeah. so staggering. And Anita now works for Oil Change um, International, based in London. And she said something to me, which a number of my, inter of my young interviewees said, which was, you know, I'm really wondering, you know, I've always wanted to have children, but I'm always wondering whether I should bring a child into this world. And I know there are, um, uh, I mean, first of all, I have to say that I totally respect women who, who don't want to have children and want to remain child free. And I think that's a perfectly good um, decision for those who, dis who, who feel that way. But there are many young women who would like to have children and have the same view as Anissa. And she said that she was having discussions with other young women and someone said to her, but surely the whole point is that's why you're doing this activism, to create a future in which women like us feel they can bring a child mm -hmm. in. And so, you know, what a number of these women were saying to me is, you know, to decide not to have children is really to give up in the face of climate catastrophe and really to let the fossil fuel emitters win, 
because they don't care if you have a child or not. Um, and I was just very moved by that, the way that um, the thoughtfulness of young activists like Anissa, but also the way they are using their activism to help work through this question and, and change things. So I loved interviewing her and I think she's absolutely brilliant. But I also, one of the things that really has angered me um, about uh, the um, climate debate, and I say this as an old woman, uh, I, you know, my last book before this one was called How to Age, and I'm trying to reclaim the word old so it's it's doesn't have the same stigma, you know. People say, oh, you're not old. Yes, I am old, and I'm very happy to be old. Um, but, but I think this debate is often framed as being about young people or young women. And, you know, young women are going to save the planet. In fact, you know, someone said to me that my book shouldn't just be called How Women Can Save the Planet. It should have a subtitle either, but they shouldn't have to, but we shouldn't have to, or How Women Can Save the Planet, but not on our own. We need help from everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but I think this, this trope that young women, the future depends on them. And I think, what are you laying on young women? Haven't young women got enough to contend with? We know that COVID, that the pandemic had a very severe health uh, effect on the mental health of a lot of young women. We know that social media is impacting upon young women. And now we are passing on all the responsibility for the climate crisis, for resolving it to young women. And I think, you know, leave them alone. Um, I've got two daughters, you know, they've got their lives to live. They can't spend the entire time. And it's part of a narrative that the climate crisis it was caused by um, selfish old um, people and young people, particularly young women, have to repair what old people did. And I completely reject that narrative. I reject that narrative because it again lumps all old people together. And there are a lot of poor old people. Um, and there are a lot of old people who did nothing to cause the climate crisis. And there are a lot of young people who really don't care that much about the climate <laughs> crisis too. What we need is an intergenerational movement. And so, the other person who really inspired me um, interviewing her was Rosmarie uh, Wiedler-Velti, who is from Switzerland, and she's co-director of Klima Seniorinnen, um, which is senior women um, who uh, are um, involved in climate protection, which is it's an organization that's been going since 2016 and um, they are affiliated to Greenpeace and they are taking the Swiss government to the European Court of Human Rights because they argue quite rightly that in, in, in that um, enormous drought in Europe in 2003 when 70,000 people died, the majority of them were old women for all kinds of reasons. And they argue that um, Switzerland is not um, decarbonizing fast enough. And that the result is that it threatens the health 
particularly of older people and old women. And they are the first um, group to um, take a government to court and their case is being held at the moment. And if they're successful, it will set a precedent. And uh, this excites me. First of all, Rosemary has a whole history of activism. When her kids were young, she was involved in all kinds of environmental activism. And I love the contrast um, and the, the parallels between the young, you know, yeah. a, a young mm -hmm. activist like Anissa and, um, and, and Rosemary. Mm. And I do think that we need everybody working together, including um, old people. And, and the other reason I, I love the things she has, she's doing is it's part of a whole new trend, relatively new over the last 10 years, of climate activism called climate litigation, where groups are taking the fact, remember when, when the Paris Agreement was passed, everyone got terribly excited and thought, this is it. You know, we've, there are, these are internationally agreed limits that will, you know, will limit emissions and the rise in temperature to 1.5 um, degrees centigrade over pre-industrial levels. Of course, we've had a report out this week from the IPCC um, that actually it's going to rise above that, partly caused by El Nino, but other factors. Um, and these is saying, right, we've got the Paris Agreement and then we've got the reality of what our governments are doing or failing to do to limit emissions. And in that space in between, we are going to take, we are going to use the law and take people to court, take governments to court. And I mean, this country, they, there were a group of young um, people, young women tried to do that and weren't successful. They couldn't get it to the court. But I mean, we've got governments who are um, giving the go ahead to new coal fields. I mean, this is absolutely crazy. This is absolutely crazy. This is like somebody you know, dying of alcoholism when their liver is and completely shot to pieces saying, give me a bottle of gin and I'm <laughs> going to drink it all in one go. I mean, it is absolute madness. So I think climate litigation is a very useful um, vehicle, instrument that um, activists are using. So these two, Anissa and Rosemary, you know, they are... 45 years difference in age between them, but they are both working towards, they don't know each other except through the pages of my <laughs> book, but they are both pulling in the same direction. And I think it shows the different, kind, you know, so, so Anita is working with a particular um, pressure group, lobby group, Oil Change International. And Rosemary is working in, with climate litigation and, and, and the courts. And we need all these different ways of working and different ways of putting pressure on governments, on the uh, fossil fuel companies, on the financial institutions that are bankrolling them. We need all these different ways of producing the pressure to get the results that we want. Yeah, absolutely. Tackle everybody from all the different angles to finally get to the goal. Uh, what we want to get. Yeah, I, I thank you for sharing the story of An Anita um, so much because 
the main group of our main audience of this podcast is literally young women exactly in the age of um yeah thinking about getting children or not and i think it's great um of you that you shared exactly that story so i'm i'm very grateful for that and um you just talked as well about um, mitigation in your book you explicitly talk about your vision and steps we would need to take to mitigate um just briefly because we're running almost out of time um yeah i would i would like to ask you to to explain and paint the picture how this vision looks and yeah and if you would need to give maybe three recommendations on the next steps um on the next steps that we all need would need to take what would these three steps maybe look like mm. okay um i know well, it's a tough one <laughs> okay well um the first thing i would say is that all around the world there are various ideas for a green new deal you know roosevelt's um, new deal um after the great depression which uh was i mean there was a lot wrong with it we now know but i won't even get into that but Inspired by that, people have been suggesting Green New Deals. Now, Anissa Khan pointed out that some of these just export um, uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions um, to other countries. Unless we think in global terms, um, we really, uh, we're not going to solve this. Um, I, there, there are um, a couple of things I want to say to, about this. There's a, a, a marvellous British economist called Kate Rayworth, R-A-W-O-R-T-H. And she's written a book called Donut Economics. And basically mm -hmm. the donut, you know, the shape of the, the, the pastry with the hole in the middle. She says um, the middle, if you think of the, 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 the smaller um, circle of a donut, that is the basics that we all need to live well in the world. In other words, shelter, food, education, uh, all those uh, uh, health and, and medical provision, all those basic things that we all need. And at the outer rim is what the world can support, what, what the planet can support. And she says, in between those two is where all human society and economic activity should take place so that it meets the needs of pe people's basic needs and also the limit of what the planet can can tolerate and i think that's a very good basis to think about it there's one other thing i want to point out which was some work done by a brilliant british group called the women's budget group and they talked about care And they invite us to think about what a society would look like if it was organized around the needs of the most needy, those who need care. And I should point out that's going to be all of us at some stage in our life. You know, we can't just think, oh, that's just old people or whatever. Yeah. You know, you break your knee like I did 15 years ago and suddenly you experience the world in a very different way. 
Um, yes. And they have pointed out, they've done some very good research that shows that care jobs, jobs in the care sector, are um, much less polluting than jobs anywhere else. But actually the same amount of money given to care produces a lot more jobs than if you put it in construction, for example. Obviously, we need to build things. So between those two, I mean, really what we're thinking about here is a change so enormous that it's hard to contemplate. And I think what happens then is a kind of gigantism sets in and people start, and particularly men start having these grandiose geoengineering schemes like a giant umbrella to shield the earth from the sun, you know, really crazy ideas that could actually make things worse. And, or people fall back on, oh, you've got to recycle. And if you don't, it's your fault. And it's usually women blame because women usually do most of the basic shopping. So what I call blame the dame. So what we need is something between these kind of giant solutions, like someone suggested there should be an enormous umbrella shielding Earth from the sun, which is a completely crazy idea. Or you're told to recycle, you know. Well, if I recycle, um, you know, a, 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 a plastic container, you know, that's not going to stop catastrophe. Um, we need the things in between. And there's another very good uh, British group, and they say, look around you. What are the wealth producing institutions? So most of us have some connection to a school or a university or a hospital or a leisure centre we use or a community centre. And all those places have a hospital. I mean, I don't know about, about Germany. In the UK, hospital food is famously terrible. I mean, when I had my first child, my husband brought in food for me and all the nurses would crowd round and the midwives and say, oh, can we have some? Because the food was so bad. And that food comes, is produced by transnational companies that usually have their headquarters in some island that doesn't, so they don't pay tax. And it's horrible, ultra processed food that is very bad for the climate and for health. And so this group says, and they've been doing this with, with um, hospitals, for example, why don't you get your food from local producers where it has no air miles, it, it doesn't have to travel, it'll be healthy, you will be supporting the local economy and it will be cheaper. And this is the kind of, if you like, mid-range solution that I find very exciting. Um, and in my book, I just give a lot of other um, examples. So if, for example, you're a member of a, uh, of a gym, you could, with other gym users, say, OK, what is my membership money used? Where does the food come from? Um, are you what kind of energy source have you got? Could we put pressure on you to put solar panels on? Um, uh, you know, are you if you if you have a if you're paying into a pension, you know, is the pension being invested in fossil fuels? All these things. So this is something in between individual action and some giant process that makes us all feel, um, uh, you know, a bit helpless. Those actions 
difference in between in our immediate environment, getting together with other people, those are going to be the most effective in the long run. And and for these um, solutions, like being somewhere in the middle of the donut, I would say um, everybody can participate, basically. And yeah, exactly. So, and we're running out of time and I want to thank you so, so much for, for sharing the insights of your book with all of us. It's been very insightful for me and I hope my listeners think the same about our conversation. And now you have uh, two book recommendations. Um, one is How Women Can Save the Planet by Dr. Anne Karp and the other one is The Donut Economy, which I am currently reading as well. <laughs> so Anne, I thank you so, so much for being my guest today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Annika. Thank you everybody for listening. Please make sure to hit the bell to not miss any episode. If you enjoyed it, share the podcast with your friends and help us spread the word. Because only together we can change our world to the better.